You're listening to SBS on the Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. Hi everyone, it's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Friday, the 9th of February 2024. On Market Day, we'll speak with Diane College from Morgan's for her take on the day on the market. But first, we'll start with the inflation debate because new research from the Commonwealth Bank suggests inflation remains elevated because of needs and not wants which may give various levels of government something to think about. Inflation for discretionary items, excluding tobacco, so that's non-essentials. Things like takeaway meals, alcohol and holidays is already within the RBA's target band of 2 to 3%, so higher interest rates have worked to restrict spending there. But when it comes to non-discretionary items, that's essential goods like food, rent, electricity and insurance, well, that remains well outside the band. For more, I spoke with Gareth Aird. He is the head of Australian economics at the Commonwealth Bank. There's a few points to unpack there. Uh, the first is that higher rates are clearly working to slow demand growth in the economy. And then by extension, we've seen inflation come down. Now, the areas where demand growth has slowed the most is in the discretionary space or non-essential goods and services. That's what you'd expect. And price rises there have been a lot more muted. Uh, When we look at essential items, though, particularly related to housing, so we've got rents there, the cost of building a new home, uh, insurance and utilities, price rises there are still pretty strong. And there's not really a lot that the Reserve Bank can do to influence prices there. So effectively, they've had to run harder against some of the other components of the basket. And the data indicates that's actually working. So in other words, is the Reserve Bank's job on managing inflation almost done, if they've done what they can do in terms of that blunt instrument that they've got, which is just interest rates. And what's the government's role in this then, especially if what we're seeing, um, as you mentioned, that uh, your electricity bills, um, your rents, all that sort of stuff, those prices are still high? Well, the Reserve Bank can always run harder against the discretionary components within the basket, uh, but there's no need to simply because inflation is coming down uh, a little bit more quicker than they previously anticipated, and, th- and that's good news. Um, rates are at a, currently at a restrictive setting. We're seeing the labour market loosen, and consumer spending growth is actually quite weak. So we think uh, there's not a case really at all to be tightening policy any further, and that leaving rates where they are right now for a while will continue to slow things down or continue to drag inflation down, and that'll mean that the next route move in interest rates is is down. Uh, There's not a lot they can do on some of the components uh, in the inflation basket related to housing. And and there, what we've actually observed over the past year is that very strong population growth has put upward pressure, particularly on something like rent, where higher rates just simply cannot put downward pressure on rents. Uh, And what's happening in that space is largely being influenced by the number of people coming in uh, against what we've been able to do on on the home building front. And then things like utilities, for example, are influenced by uh, energy prices. And insurance cost is actually a little bit um, circular here because that's just gone up significantly as the cost of home building has gone up. So I think from a policy perspective, we shouldn't look for monetary policy to actually solve issues within that space. You know, that's a, It's a broader question really about what has driven price rises for some of the housing components of the CPI and what um, would the fiscal authority, so in particular the government, want to do there to stem price rises in that uh, part of the consumer basket.
What can be done on the on the policy side? Because the other thing is there was an interesting thing in your note today that said big public work programs to keep up with population growth, as you mentioned, at a time of constrained capacity is keeping housing construction costs high. Mm. So does that mean that government policy is actually adding to house price growth? Well, look, it is, uh, it, it is um, at the margin because these big public works programs involve a lot of workers and they involve a lot of materials. And so that ends up putting up the price for labour and it puts up the price uh, for, the, for, the, for the goods that are used in the construction process. The thing is we actually need a lot of the stuff that uh, the state governments are building because we've got strong population growth and that means we need infrastructure programs to keep up with that. The problem at the moment, though, is that in that space things are running pretty hot and that's pushing up the cost of home building because there's competition there for workers and also the cost of... Um, materials have gone up quite a bit. So if the government, I suppose, or tiers of government are going to look at this more holistically, you'd be looking at do we have the current mix right between population growth and what the capacity of the economy is? And is it the fact that um, things are running too hot in that space and that's putting upward pressure on components within the CPI basket that are ultimately uh, hitting households? And, And rent, I think, is the most obvious one because... You've got a third of households out there that are that are renters. Um, vacancy rates are incredibly low in the major capital cities because we've had two and a half percent population growth, and residential construction has just not kept up with that. So, um, you know, it's not really one for the Reserve Bank to solve. It ultimately needs to go back to uh, to government officials to look at um, what sort of imbalances we've got out there, and are there policy options that can help bring a better balance of supply and demand in the economy in that space. And it largely all relates to housing. So is it fair to say that the government needs to do a little bit more to take um, its responsibility to help bring down inflation? I, I, I look, it, it, that's, that's a choice for the government to make. But I just say that when you look at the components of the CPI basket that have been the strongest and that are most influencing the rate of inflation at the moment, there are levers that government can look to pull there to actually help uh, with cost rises there. Now, some of them are not a short-term fix. I mean, bringing in electricity or utility subsidies definitely results in measured inflation in that space coming coming down. But something like rent, for example, um, if you want to address it from a, a pure underlying demand and supply perspective, then that's not so much a short-term fix. That's going to involve looking at uh, overall population policy, looking at for the uh, the capacity of the construction sector, the building, uh, residential sector to keep up with demand, and then saying, are we are we going down the right path here? I mean, the government put out a target there for the number of new homes they want to see built over a five year period, and that's meant to line up with population growth. But the problem is we're just not building that amount of homes at the moment to keep up with the target, and therefore you've got these. Uh, imbalance in the rental market that's manifesting itself in higher rent. So there's plenty there's plenty of things to really to, to look at and to sort out. Yeah, I'd say the encouraging sign is that inflation is coming down and discretionary inflation has dropped quite materially. But I think if we want to expand the inflation debate to go just beyond what the Reserve Bank's trying to do and have a look at the drivers of infl- inflation, then I think there is a role for for the government to play in all of this. Final question. So given that things like rents will take a while to come down, wouldn't that mean that 
services inflation may still stay higher for a little bit longer. Can you still have interest rates fall in that kind of an environment? And to what extent? What are you forecasting? Yeah, look, you can. You can have components of the basket still pretty sticky, um, but other parts of the, the CPI uh, where thing, price rises are, are, more, are far more muted. And then overall, it's still possible for inflation to get back to target. Uh, and that's what we think will happen. It's just that we could get there a little bit more quickly if we didn't have some of these issues going on in the housing sector. You know, when we look at services inflation on a six-month annualised basis, which doesn't take into account what happened 12 months ago, it really just puts all the weight on the last six months. The news is actually pretty encouraging there. Um, growth in discretionary services prices has been uh, far weaker than I think a lot of people have thought because they've been looking at the annual rate of change. So directionally, things are going the right way and we think it'll move in such a way that means we get some rate relief coming later this year. But I'd just say there's a few parts of that basket that are that have been sticky. There's not much the RBA could do about it. And I think it's helpful to, to carve up the CPI where we look at the things that monetary policy is having a direct influence on and then those things where it hasn't been able to actually work to bring price rises down. And I know it's just forecast, but it's something that borrowers are keen to know. What what are your forecasts in terms of rate cuts in the near future? Look, our forecasts for the cash rate are obviously conditional on our economic forecasts and what we think the Reserve Bank's reaction function will be to the evolution of the economy over the course of this year. But on our economic forecasts, we think that we can get some uh, see some policy easing by about September of this year. We've got uh, 75 basis points of interest rate cuts in there uh, for the rest of, for the second half of this year, basically from September, and further rate cuts uh, into next year. Obviously, the further we get out, the more uncertainty there is. But if we look at what's happening in terms of economic growth, it's pretty soft at the moment. The unemployment rate is edging up, and inflation's coming down. And if those dynamics stay with us as we go through this year, then it should be we should get the policy response that sees uh, rates taken away from that restrictive setting where they currently are, something towards a, a more neutral setting. That is Gareth Eyre there, the Head of Australian Economics at the Commonwealth Bank. Now, Market Day on the SBS On The Money podcast. The Australian share market had a relatively quiet day. The S&P ASX 200 ups just 0.07%. So that's about 0.1%. For more on the day's market action, including what to expect out of profit reporting season, which really ramps up next week, I spoke with Diane College, a private client advisor at Morgan's. Okay, Diane, what drove the market today? Wow, interesting question there, Ricardo. Nice to see you again. Uh, Our market today was actually quite flat, to be honest. Um, We've got a bit of weakness in the uranium sector, and that's on the back of the fall in the share prices. They're down about 8 to 12%. Borrell came out with a very good result today. They were the only company that reported, and uh, they're up over 8 to 9%, which is quite a, a, a good result. Cochlear also continued on from yesterday. They had a positive result, and uh, they're up 4%. Uh, REA also had a really good result yesterday. They fell a little bit on the numbers, but it has come back today quite strongly. And finally, we've got Lion Town Resources, which is up around uh, 12%, and that's on the back of the stabilisation in the lithium price. 
And I think the market's also trying to wait to see if Gina Reinhart will make some sort of a play for Liontown Resources, given that she the, the creep provisioning period will end this weekend. So I think that there's a bit to play there too. We've spoken a lot about the direction of global interest rates this week and the implication for markets, Diane. But is it fair to say that attention is now turning to reporting season here? And if so, what kind of things will you be looking out for? Yeah, absolutely. So next week, we've got a big week ahead of us. We've got about 55 companies reporting. And if I can just break it down to a few different sectors, uh, the consumer sector comes out with some big results. So we've got car sales, JB Hi-Fi, Temple and Webstar and West Farmers. And clearly, that's going to give us a good indication as to what the consumer looks like and how they're feeling at the moment. The main thing to watch out for there is the outlook statements. That's when a company will come out and say, well, okay, we've we've done this much for the last six months, but this is what we expect for the next six months. And that's what the market wants to see. And that's what the price reactions are going to be relatively based on, I would suggest. Uh, we've also got CBA. So the banking sector comes out this week. So CBA is the biggest one, obviously. Uh, we'll be looking for dividend uh, certainty around that result. Uh, we've also got quarterly numbers out of ANZ, Westpac and NAB, and they would probably be focusing on the NIM, which is the net interest margin, and also if we see any increase in defaults on the back of the so-called mortgage cliff that we've been going through the last couple of years. Other big names are CSL. That comes out next week and we'll be looking for uh, a positive update on their heart trial, uh, which is a massive big trial that they're going through at the minute. Telstra is another big one. We'll be looking for dividend information there and also a bit of a strategy update from them. And we've got the insurers, so IAG and QBE, and they're key picks for us because they're all key benefits or beneficiaries, if you like, of the higher interest rates, and that will impact their earnings because they've got so much money tied up in um, fixed interest and bonds and things like that. We heard from the uh, Reserve Bank Governor, Michelle Bullock, today. As I mentioned, we've already spoken about interest rates a lot, but she did say that slowing growth in the Chinese economy could prove troubling for Australia. It comes at a time when Chinese authorities are supporting the Chinese share market. What's your take on the China story? Again, another interesting question. Well, I mean, China's obviously uh, quite important, particularly to Australia, and they are the largest commodity consumer in the world. So, you know, when we see softening in their economy, uh, it could have negative impacts on their consumption of our key commodities such as iron ore. What we haven't seen even associated with the, the slowing of the Chinese growth is any impact on our uh, pricing, any impact on the volumes that they're requiring or the actual underlying value and activity in that iron ore space. So iron ore volumes are still looking very, very strong. Um, at a current price of $130, that's obviously very resilient in the face of any type of slowing of their Chinese economy. And uh, we're, we're definitely keeping a, a close eye on it. But to date, we've seen that it's it's quite stable and uh, we're, we're pretty happy with it at the minute. But it is something to watch, no doubt. Finally, it's the first time I'm speaking to you this year, so I'm keen to um, get your um, your views on the opportunities for investors this year. 
Well, again, as um, when we booked in this appointment, I said it's very, very topical because clearly it's the reporting season. And this is it's a great time to get a read through on where the economy is and also the future value that lies in companies once they've released their results. Um, as we know, they report their earnings from the last six months. But again, it's the outlook statements that are the key. And it's important to know that because that's what provides that future value. And the market always looks forward. And that's what we look for. We look for those opportunities to actually um, sort of interpret those outlook statements and then say whether or not that's a buyer or sell. And then from there, we gauge value. And a great example of that's been Nick Scarley. They reported... Um, very good earnings. They had a great day, day one. They're up 16.5%. And since then, they've added another 7 seven to 8%. So all in all, if you'd bought that stock day one on a very positive result, you would have made 25%. So that's just an example of how uh, day one of a reporting of the report is actually very good indication as to what sort of performance you can actually get from that stock going forward. That's Diane College there from Morgan's. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision. Yeah.